Tobler Show, along with Leah O. Olmstead. I am Randy O. Tobler. Well, we can we can still do the St. Patty's Day thing, can't we, Leah? How you doing this morning? Did you do some? Uh, did you do some green, uh, you know, cabbage and corned beef and potatoes last night, or no? I did not, but I love corned Whoa. beef, so we eat it. We don't need a special occasion to eat corned beef. Ah, okay. Well, we had, uh, yeah, we had, my wife made Rubens and we had some cabbage. It was good. It's a lot of fun. So my daughter texts me that she's tuned in on Rumble. Hope you uh, take it in on Rumble with, uh, or you can do Facebook or you can do Twitter. Now, I understand we have a TikTok account, but I'm not sure if we have TikTok and I'm not sure if I want to, you know, the Liberty Lair is a, is a, is a well-provisioned highly armed and highly fenced and well-bunkered compound. And I don't know if I want the Chinese Communist Party knowing where I'm at, Leah. And TikTok would allow them to do that, wouldn't it? Wouldn't they be able to infiltrate the um, compound? Well, you yourself are not on TikTok. I just said News Talk has an account oh. on TikTok. Oh, News Talk does. Okay, yeah. well, I wanted to make sure. I don't know yeah. about this News Talk. We'll have to talk to the bosses about whether we want to yeah. Whether we want to get in with, you know, I don't know. That They yeah. come from China. I think it's, I think it's been discussed before. <laughs> I'm kidding. Speaking of uh, management, management Jeff Allen and Joe Rush did a fabulous job, and of course uh, Tim Jones and Chris Arps on the talent side of it uh, did a beautiful job of getting things uh, tuned up and and producing a great event. Uh, Chris and Tim moderated the Defending America um, event just on Tuesday evening. And I mean to tell you, Leah, it was great to see you there. It was great to see so many of you out there. If you were able to come, uh, I didn't even get a chance to say hi to all my friends. I know I saw Gene, my friend Gene, talking to my wife, and I was talking to someone, and I couldn't get back to Gene, and he was gone. I saw so many people. saw Susie there, of course, on air. and uh, I met Vic Purcelli for the first time. We've been really? working together for two years. First time I've seen Vic. Wow. And... Uh, it was a great event. And of course, Leah, it was, I think, a very sobering event for the attendees there. I know uh, even those of us who talk about this, these issues daily, uh, you know, the, the national security interest of our country, what to do in Ukraine, how to shore up our defenses, what are we going to do about China uh, and, and other potential um, enemies, real and potential enemies. Uh, you know, I think it was very sobering. And um I think our military readiness, you know, Jim Talent talked about uh, strategic uh, type things in, in terms of looking at the whole issue through 
the prism of the the bad guys, the Chinese, and how they are ambitious. They have a long strategy for um, world domination. They don't want to be second fiddle. They're now getting close to being first fiddle in terms of world currency might be switching in some ways to that. Russia is getting around the embargo by dealing in uh, in Chinese dollars, Chinese yuan for uh, oil. And so things are changing. And I think we're behind the eight ball. I didn't know how far behind times we were. And um, it, it was it was quite something. Uh and, and so let's go ahead and talk about what Dakota Wood had to say. Dakota was talking about America, the, 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 the armed forces and our military and both our various platforms. Um, and Jim, uh, you know, doubled down on this as well. But Dakota made an entire inventory of just how far behind we are uh, with our, our missiles, our rockets, our um, tanks, our ships. And, you know, Jim's been a big deal on ships for a long time. He's been really worried about our Navy and, and what a lack of uh, naval power we have as China types to take over the South China Sea. But Dakota was talking about our Ute, as uh, God rest his soul, Rush Limbaugh used to say, our young skulls full of mush and their eligibility and their readiness for armed service. Listen to what he said. Uh, 77% of all American youth between 17 and 24 years of age are ineligible for military service because of criminal records, substance abuse, physical and mental health issues, and obesity. 77%. Of the remaining 23%, very few want to serve. Uh, the senior Marine Corps general in charge of recruiting about two weeks ago said that of the 33 million American youth, 17 to 24, the four major military services are competing for the same pool of 450,000 young people. 450,000 out of 33 million. So, you know, stories that shouldn't be told, right? Defending America. Uh, it's, it's just so wonderful that you all came out here to kind of immerse yourself in these issues. I uh, wish we had some good news to share. be <laughs> depressing. But you can't solve a problem if you don't understand the problem. And so that was it, defending America, stories that, you, uh, that, that, that haven't been told. And I'm telling you, that was just a small appetizer for what was a, uh, a tremendous entree that ran beyond its scheduled time. And that tells you something. When the speakers are so engaged, the audience so engaged, some great questions. Obviously, uh, Tim and Chris had some beautiful questions and then follow-up questions. Uh, there were opportunities for uh, folks to uh, to write their questions down on on cards and uh, then it was just a fabulous discussion and leah as a young person what do you think about what you heard i mean did you find that maybe surprising as far as uh you know dakota went on to talk about how it takes what a year and a half to replace a stinger missile i think it was and my gosh we we just what would happen all these arms we've sent to ukraine and then what would happen if we really needed them to help defend taiwan or if we needed to defend ourselves well what did you think of it um, I mean, I agree with everything he said. I don't, I could see youth not being interested or not wanting to go. I don't know. I mean, I think of myself and uh, I don't, I wouldn't want to be like involved in that. So yeah. I guess I think the youth these days are more like wrapped up in TikTok and rather than serving our country. So, right. Well, I'm increasingly, look, he, you know, he referenced, he said 
77% of our eligible, you know, uh, military-aged youth, for one reason or another, are not fit to serve, either because of substance abuse, trouble with the law, uh, obesity, uh, you know, and they've had to lower the standards for uh, for uh, the you know the the criteria for the service. It is absolutely jaw dropping as far as you know what happens if we would need to noble, mobilize a an armed force very quickly. Um, I wish I could serve. I wish right now that I could serve. I I often kid my. I have a son-in-law who is a special forces training, and his wife, my daughter, are out in Fort Bragg right now, and um, and he's in the midst of training. I mean, the guy's just a—he's just a tiger. I mean, the guy—you wouldn't. No, no China man wants to wants to mess with that guy. No guy from no Chinese soldier, Russian soldier, Iranian uh, armed guard. No one, no one. But those type of individuals are few and far between. I always kid him. I'm like, hey, you want me to let's go for a run? I'll I'll show you some military readiness. I'm kidding, of course. But I think those of us who realize the the brilliance, the magic that is the American experiment in this great country wish that we could now go back maybe and serve if we didn't. I didn't. Uh, because I was, you know, basically ready at a time when, you know, we were out of Vietnam and there really wasn't anything going on. It was a time of peace for the most part, except for the Cold War. Uh, Reagan was in power. And and that was another theme of the of the evening. What was that theme? The theme being that the Chinese, with their buildup of arms and service members, their cultural um preparedness and their long history, thousands years history, proud tradition of nationalism in that country, all combined to make a major threat. And they are doing to us, especially with their buildup in arms, their nuclear capabilities, what they're doing in the South China Sea, the several options they have to either through embargo or through just a direct attack on Taiwan, take that over. And then as Jim Talon said, I talked to him before the event and he he echoed that during the event. Uh, I should say he talked to me before the event. Helene and I stood there in uh, at the foot of the master <coughs> as we had a chance to talk to Dakota too at the VIP portion. And, and Jim got very, very worked up and he said he's very, very worried that if they take over that chain of, uh, if they get that the, uh, Taiwan and sort of have dominance over that first chain of islands outside of uh, China, they have total, They it's just a, now a funnel for them to be dominant of the whole Ch- South China Sea. Think of what that could do to commerce around the globe. Um, and and I, it's, it's high time. It's a call to action. It's a call to action for our leaders to, to, spend more money on the military and be defense and be defensive, be able to defend ourselves on the drop of a hat. And on the other hand, for our culture to recognize that through our lifestyles, through our distractions with social media and other things that we do not have a ready work, a a, a military force. And we need to really reprioritize where our sensibilities are in this country. The Chinese are doing to us, we're in the we're in the midst of watching what the Chinese are doing to us, taking a the playbook, not just a page of it, the playbook from Ronald Reagan and how he broke the back of the Soviet Union by having overwhelming military strength poised and ready to deploy. And we at the same time have become complacent. And um, 
I guess while both of the speakers, Dakota Wood and Senator Jim Talent, were optimistic that this country will respond when we are called to do so, I think um, there was concern that maybe that wasn't going to be able to, to, we weren't going to be able to catch up this time when that time comes. We have a caller, Leah? You do, Charlie. We do, 314-912-1019. Let's go ahead and uh, take a call. Who's on board? Doctor, this is Charlie. I haven't spoken to you in a long time. I used to have a farm up near Marceline, and I would call in while I was driving. Oh, yeah, Charlie. Yeah, great to hear yep. from you. How you doing? It's done well. And you? I am I am good. I'm worried about our country's defensive posture, though. How about you? Me, too. Um, the reason I'm calling is I recognize this, and I have for a few years now. Uh, I've served in the Coast Guard. And uh, I'm 61 years old now and uh, too old for them. And they've even lowered their standards and extended their age, but I'm still too old to go back in. And, and I deeply regret that because I, I think I have a lot to offer still. I mean, I'm training right now for a half Ironman and then a full Ironman after that. And uh, wow. I'm probably in as wow. good a shape as I was when I got out of boot camp, you know, 40 years okay. ago. Um, but I think this was all done on purpose. I, I think this all began back in the 60s when the leftist movement was taking hold in our government. and We purposely destroyed the family unit uh, with the Great Society Act. Uh, this has been going on for a long time to weaken our country. And, and unfortunately, people are just sitting by. And when you talk to them about it, they act like you have three heads. Yeah, I can't it's, agree with you more, Charlie. It's it's a cultural problem, isn't it? And it goes back to uh, an erosion of the family. And guess what? We the people voted for the leaders that did that to us. It's 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 just it's terrible when you think about it. Yes, it is. And I, I you know, if if and and I'm mad at myself for allowing this to happen during my generation, our generation, uh, but. Our parents, when they the media attacked Joseph McCarthy and made him out to be a madman, he was right. They were in our That's government, right. these communists, they were in our schools, and they knew exactly what they were doing all along. Yep. And and they were in the they were in Hollywood too. And we've seen that really evolve. And and for what it's worth, can you imagine what would have happened if Barry Goldwater would have been elected president? Can you imagine how different this country would be now if truly conservative values would have been uh, brought into the Oval Office at that time in our nation? I think we'd be looking at a different trajectory. Yep, I agree with you wholeheartedly. But I'm, yeah. I'm saddened by where we're at, and I'm worried about how it's going to end. But I, yeah. I, I have faith in people our age. You know, you say you didn't serve, but you would now. The sad thing yes. is you may be called upon from a completely different force than our own. Yeah. Uh, well, to, it's it's yeah. sad. But I'm ready. Yeah. I'm ready, Charlie. I took my dogs <laughs> for a run yesterday, and um, I had I'd had a little injury in my knee, and I I I, I'm, I think I'm getting back to shape. So maybe I don't think I'll ever do a. Uh, what'd you say? A, a, you're going to do an Ironman? I we did some sprint triathlons a few years ago, but my goodness, holy cow! Well, all I think you should be uh, if you wanted to serve, they should let you serve. I don't think age well, should matter. I don't think they will. Although after today, I, 
I did buy a different farm down south of Sullivan, and I'm on my way there now. Uh, and right. I, you know, up there I had a lot of farm ground, and down here I've got a lot of trees. And today I'm clearing trees so I can put in food plots ah. for the deer and turkey. Oh, and, and after yeah, I do that's that, that's great. And- I feel it a lot more than I do after training all day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> Charlie, our weekend warrior. Hey, it's good to reconnect. Let's do it again. Thanks so much, my friend. And be, be careful with that chainsaw out there. That's a dangerous, dangerous job. I got to go do some timber stand management myself on my place. Hey, thanks a lot, my friend. Appreciate it. Thanks. See you. Bye. Uh, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, it's important that the voices like Charlie's be heard. Let's make sure your voice is heard, too. Um, Patrick Ishmael coming up. Uh, we talked to him uh, last week about the uh, the upcoming uh, resumption of the general session in the Missouri legislature. Lots to talk about. And later on in the program, it's a busy show. Uh, of course, uh, we have Virginia Cruda. Uh, we have Rainer Zittelman calling us from Germany about the financial crisis and about uh, exposing capitalism. We have um, Dr. Daniel Haller as well talking about the medical uh, situation and more of your calls and lots of stories coming up here on the Randy Tober Show. Stay right there. Patrick Ishmael from uh, Show Me joins us, Director of Government Accountability there. And as uh, the general session and the legislature gears up again after the uh, spring break. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on there, what might make it, what may not, maybe some surprises. How you doing, Patrick? Thanks for being with me. Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me back on, Randy. Are you speaking to me from Pensacola on your spring break? or uh, <laughs> No, no, no. I'm speaking from my house in Kansas City. It's, uh, it's probably <laughs> a little bit nicer in Cozumel right now, but I have too much work to do around here. All right. So uh, lots going on this uh, year again with the hope that um, with some of the dissension that um, was really stymied a lot of the work because of the, the redistricting issues last uh, last year, that maybe we could get beyond that and get some things done this year. And uh, I know some good stuff done with education. Susan was happy about that last week when we talked to some things happening there. Um, so far, what's your uh, what's your grade on how they're doing there and uh, what what are your priorities moving forward? Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd probably give them a C grade. I, I think starting the legislative session, they were saying the right things and they were advancing in the right bills uh, early on. And, you know, it's, it's like a budget. You know, your budget represents your priorities. And I think that when it comes to legislation, what you work on first and what you actually get done uh, first or otherwise represents what your priorities are, too. So it was great to see that, you know, a lot of education bills, transparency bills, Missouri Parents Bill rise, a few others and some tax uh, cut legislation got a lot of time early on. Uh, but, you know, the first bill that got passed and actually got signed by the governor, and I think it's the only bill that's been passed so far, is uh, one that expanded government by raising salaries for state employees. Beyond that, nothing else has actually been passed. And, and last week, we saw some progress on uh, interdistrict choice, which is a, a school choice advancement. Right, right. But that was only in one chamber. Uh, we still have another chamber to go. There could be amendments to it. And all these 
things are subject to uh, a filibuster, which is what we saw yeah. at the, uh, the end of last week. That's actually what uh, the Senate closed shop early because they were in the middle of a filibuster. So we'll see what happens in the second half of the legislative session. But, uh, you know, I'm hopeful. But, you know, it, it was an A. Uh, now it's a C. Uh, and depending on how things go, it could be even lower than a C uh, by May. You know, you mentioned that filibuster that uh, that led to an early closure of the first part of the session. And that was uh, surrounding that bill to protect children uh, from what I would call experimentation. Um, we had a good, robust discussion about that last week, in fact, on, I guess, Thursday <laughs> or Friday. Um, I call it experimentation. And the academics may say it isn't, but we're experimenting on a whole generation of children. And so many states uh, across the land have already passed, well, several have already passed legislation to say, look, you're not going to do gender-affirming surgery uh, and other, you know, radical treatments, you know, underage, name the uh, 16, 17, 18, whatever. Um, where do you think yeah, that might well, go? I mean, well, I, I think that it's, that's a great question. And, you know, I, th- I thought that the supermajorities had a pretty clear position on that. And I, I'm not sure why they're kind of standing by as the filibuster happens, uh, because the filibuster is probably going to come back uh, in the second half of legislative session, too. And, you know, I mean, there, you, you call it gender affirming surgeries. You can call it sex changes. You know, sex changes on kids. I, I feel like there's got to be some consensus about that being a bad idea. Uh, but, you know, that's one of many issues that the legislature, I, I thought, had some pretty ready consensus about that they were going to go full bore, you know, full, full steam ahead on. Uh, and I think generally speaking, that's, that's probably been the case. But, uh, you know, a lot of these these pieces of legislation should have been done, I think, in February. I mean, that's when they expanded government. They got it done, I think, in February, maybe, you know, maybe middle or end of February, but it was still done like weeks ago. Uh, and so that's the one bill they passed, like gone to the governor and been signed into law. And the question is, well, why are these other bills kind of lingering and, and not where they really ought to be. And, and the problem is that, you know, you get to the end of the legislative session and then you have horse trading and a lot of bills get weakened. And so if you want to get this done right, you need to get it done where you still have plenty of time uh, to make corrections to it. And the later this gets, you know, you not only have like the high priorities that, that are going to get, you know, kind of bound up and then maybe, you know, uh, won't get done. But then there are other priorities that others might have. And, you know, there's been talk about uh, uh, sports betting, you know, I, I, if, I can't imagine that getting done in some of these other items not getting done <laughs> from a priority perspective. So if you care about any other subject, uh, you really want to get these big things out of the way. And then you need to be secondary or tertiary issues. Uh, at least that's what I would hope the Senate and the House would, how they would approach it. If you don't get the first things done, you shouldn't be moving on to the second things. You know, one of my priorities is to just not worry too much about what government's doing and their accountability because we just give them just enough money to do what what they have to do and don't give them too much money and then you don't have to worry about it right i'm i think that's a general principle that if uh, last time i remember those guys back in 1776 and beyond were thinking about that you know just okay so what about taxes and property taxes and sales taxes and other taxes and some tax reform here when they're awash in money i mean is there any chance of some of those bills uh, you know giving us some tax relief yeah, you know, we, we obviously had some tax relief uh, last year, passed into law, uh, reductions in the individual income tax. I know that the House has reductions in the corporate income tax as a priority, and I think that's important because uh, the corporate income tax is, of course, the most destructive tax that we have to growth. Reducing that, I think, makes Missouri more competitive and allows for reinvestment in, in at least C-Corps, 
which is what the corporate income tax really, generally speaking, applies to. Um, but I think you're looking at uh, maybe some changes to the personal property tax, you know, the way in which we, we tax cars in this state. Uh, I think that you might also see reductions in the sales tax as well. I know that um, one senator is pushing very hard to remove, I believe, food from yeah. sales tax. Uh, and so that it'll be very interesting to see if the Senate makes time for that and then follows through on it. That'll be a pretty big uh, price uh, uh, ticket uh, item uh, to, for them to have to accommodate for. Because, you know, if you tax food, which is, you know, a, a certain percentage of the economy, um, that is, you're going to have to either replace it or you're going to have to reduce government or you're going to have to figure out a way to make that work. But uh, other other reductions, I think, are a little bit more modest. That's the probably a pretty big one uh, if they end up removing the, the sales tax on food which has happened in other places uh, that, that'll be a pretty heavy lift but uh, you know it's certainly within the realm of possibility well I know they don't have a tax on food in Iowa uh, do any of our is it Kansas in addition now I think there's one other state that is le- looking at it yeah, I, I mean, there are a lot of states that simply don't. Yeah, and, I, you know, I, I think I think I think we can have a pretty good discussion about the policy behind that. But I, I will say, though, that, you know, from if you're looking at it strictly from a growth perspective, the, the hierarchy for, you know, destructive growth, the most destructive growth is the income tax. The next most destructive is the sales tax. And the best tax for growth is, is the property tax. And so if you start cutting up the sales tax and saying, well, we won't apply the sales tax to this or to newspaper ink or, or any other kind of item, uh, it makes it harder to move away from income taxes. And so, you know, you, you can have lots of different policy perspectives, like what should be the objective of our state tax system. Um, but I think that does have to be kept in mind that if you are going to remove you know, food from taxation, that means that you may not be able to, to reduce the income tax as quickly. It's kind of like saying, uh, you know, if you're going to create a bunch of tax credits, uh, tax incentives. Uh, what you're really doing is you're you're avoiding the hard decisions, actually reducing a lot of those taxes. You're carving up the base. So, um, yeah. But if, if if I had my my choice, I, I would tax the income tax first and foremost. But uh, you know, there are a lot of reasons to tax different taxes in different ways, uh, and it'll be interesting to see what the legislature does. Yeah, I, you're right. I mean, I, they 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 don't want to cut too much when we are awash in money because it's a one-timer uh, due to all the COVID, you know, money printing that went on. And so I, I, they want to be responsible about tax reform, but I think that it's always good to keep an eye on that insatiable appetite that government has for our hard-earned dollars. There's no doubt about that. Uh, certificate of need is always an interesting discussion in the healthcare industry. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. Why don't you tell me yours? Because we've had this discussion before, but I, I think that on balance, I'm against them. I think you need to watch out for some possible unintended consequences of just letting everyone drop an MRI wherever they want to drop one or whatever other things, because I think it could lead to I think it could lead to some um, uh, overuse, uh, you know, even if the prices go down and people just, you know, maybe ordering things that aren't always necessary because you got to pay for that MRI sometime. But what say you? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's an important conversation to have. And I think, you know, we've written about this a lot in the past is that, you know, what Obamacare, the, the Affordable Care Act really did was it doubled down on a broken status quo that really puts kind of insurance at the center of our healthcare system. And if you really want to move away from, you know, kind of the bloat of, of American healthcare, you really need 
to have competition. Mm-hmm. CON reform, I think, is a, is a key aspect of that. I think, you know, scope of practice reform, licensing reform, there are a lot of things that you can do. But I think that one, one of the main problems is that when you have insurance that really isn't acting like insurance, like health insurance is more like a maintenance plan. If you look at your, uh, if you have a home and you insure your home, one of the driving costs of, of uh, homeowners insurance is insurance for your roof. And the reason for that is because insurers know that uh, there's a fair chance that uh, the homeowner might try to get their roof replaced through insurance. And so it's not necessarily a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and they price those products accordingly. If you want to really reduce the cost of your homeowner's insurance, you you hike up your deductible on that so that your insurer is not going to pay that. Well, when you look at health insurance, it really is, you know, it's, there's a whole list of things that are required to be paid. And so in our premiums, we pay that all up front. And so in some respects, you know, there there is an element of health insurance that actually acts as insurance, but there are so many things that we're kind of prepaying for that's baked in. That's why, you know, monthly insurance premiums, depending on who you are, they could be 500 bucks a month, a thousand bucks a month, depending on the size of your family. And and it's, it's all a, a part of a broken system that dates back to the 1940s. Uh, and it, it's a bad system. Uh, and moving away from that system toward more competition through CON reform or a wide variety of other options is much better for healthcare than relying on a system that basically uh, uh, has a third party that gets to kind of skim money in the process and is providing insurance, kind of, sort of, but also is mainly providing uh, just kind of like a maintenance package up front. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're, philosophically I agree with you. And and ultimately, I think the more that people have choice and keep their money and spend it wisely for what I would call smaller ticket items, and that definition now continues to grow because people are having to look at those high deductibles. And often, I, I would say the majority of my patients in, a, in, an, in an average year never even begin to, to get into their insurance for any substantial amount because they never reach their deductible. <laughs> and it's, yeah. you know what I mean? And so that that's an impetus. To, to go out and do some shopping, of course, realizing that uh, value is a function of cost and quality, and there are differences in quality, so you well, got to be careful well, about and, it. And you also have to have price transparency. I mean, if you want people to be able to shop, you need to have at least some semblance of, like, a, 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 you can go from to this hospital or this care center and actually weigh out the, the value of the services provided against the cost. Uh, as And we're not talking about, you know, really ambulance services or emergency, emergency services. We're talking about you know, things that you can plan for. And there just isn't nearly enough of that planning uh, that is baked into the, the healthcare system. And I think if you did have that, if you had, you know, more obvious, straightforward skin in the game at the point at which you're engaging the healthcare system, I think folks might uh, make different decisions and, and uh, price shop and, and uh, hostile shop accordingly. Well, you know, just like we're seeing Mr. Pillow go directly to consumer and more and more, you see direct to consumer, right? Manufacturer, direct to consumer. You hear it on the talk. Uh, news channels, you hear it on, you know, more and more of that, uh, supplement manufacturers and others. And so uh, I'm, in fact, I'm imminently on on the verge of of unleashing what I call a better way, which is a way to try to bypass as much of the middleman as we can on this thing. And there are various variations of that. But, But by connecting people who want to go direct to the patient,
patient and provide that care rather than are that good or service rather than having everything as you say be repriced for an insurance model and then yeah it just it gets there's so much overhead involved on the part of the provider of that care to to, to dance and, and dance the dance the insurer whether it's the government or you know the big three or four want to make a dance and i think the more and more that this movement gets going along with the kinds of initiatives you're talking about where we give people choice it's going to be it's going to be really uh, great if the government if the if the insurance government medical induct, industrial cartel doesn't uh, you know uh, regulate that away that's the big problem because uh, on the federal level they're trying to do that and you know that patrick Mm-hmm. Well, I am a direct primary care, concierge care, direct surgical care. How'd you guess? Those are one, <laughs> one, one, one way to get around it. And then, and then, of course, I think just generally speaking, I mean, folks need to understand that a lot of the cost of, of, of care comes down to the cost of billing. The yep. whole process, if you can cut that out, you, know, you, you save, you know, 20, 30, maybe more percent yep. of the cost of care. So it, it's simplifying the system in general. Yep. And unfortunately, a lot of the main players are benefit from a complicated system. Yeah, and, and, and yet, uh, you know, it it takes a, the average, you know, practice with a, with a general practitioner is eh, four to five support people per doc. And in, in a more direct-to-consumer model, it's probably one and a half to two, you know. It's just so, it makes so much sense. But the government doesn't like that either because there go jobs. It's a job. The, Obamacare was largely a jobs program. And so was the, the EMR High Tech Act and the Stimulus Act behind that. But anyway, I'm getting off the subject. Um, so... So, do you are you optimistic that um, what about what about this um, the parental bill of rights? I don't think you know we talked about protecting the kids and operating on them. But on the other hand, what about um, you know in terms of uh, parents having more input into what their kids are being taught? How about that? I, you know, I think that that has a pretty good chance. Again, this is a you know a, a primary priority I think for the Senate and the House, and so there's been a lot of great uh, you know uh, words said about what their plan is to getting that done. They say that it. Will will get done. Um, and, uh, you know, a version of it has passed uh, through the Senate already. And so, um, and, and the idea in, in short is putting, you know, parents and kids at the center of their, uh, the education system in the state. And we can talk about, you know, uh, school choice as well. That's not part of the Parents' Bill of Rights, but I think once you start establishing what these rights are, uh, and, and that includes things like being able to see what's being taught to your kids, uh, being able to see how money is being spent, being able to see how well or how poorly your school or district is performing. I think a lot of parents didn't realize until relatively recently that only about a third of Missouri students are proficient in math. <laughs> That's Whoa, a failing yeah. grade. Well, one, one in three is four. And, and the, there were, was some new testing that came out of the state, I believe last week or the week before, uh, that put uh, uh, about one-fifth of the school districts in the state potentially on some sort of uh, uh, a, a probation uh, because they are not doing very very well academically. Uh, currently, we have over 500 school districts. Again, like one in three students uh, is able to do math at, at grade level, which means the two out of three aren't really where they need to be. And yet, none of these school districts currently, none of these school districts are unaccredited. That is just remarkable. And, and I think that when parents are able to actually see where uh, their kids and where their uh, schools and where their districts actually stand uh, in a transparent uh, kind of way, way, an accountable kind of way, uh, I think it does uh, change people's minds who may be on the fence about school choice 
about, you know, what the need is for school choice, which is enormous right now. Mm-hmm. So I think that the Missouri Parents of Rights is a great opportunity to pass. It's been made a priority. Uh, and, and obviously, we think the reforms in it are enormously important. Uh, but, uh, you know, the it, time will tell. They have until mid-May to get this done uh, and, and time's ticking. So thank you, uh, Patrick Ishmael, for being with us. It was a fabulous uh fabulous uh, interview and we appreciate uh, all that uh, Patrick and the Show Me Institute folks do. Showmeinstitute.org is where you can keep up with everything about governance in Missouri and uh, with the principles that you and I both value. Hey, when we come back, we've got our Bagel Win, the weekly uh, segment where we talk about some of the interesting sound bites of the week. Bagel Win coming up right after a short break here on 1019-941 News Talk STL. Always second guess in the time but God is a plane. All right, well, welcome back with Leah Olmstead. I'm Randy Tobler. It's the Tobler Show here on News Talk STL. What a fabulous event last Tuesday night. I just, I have thought about what Senator Talon and Dakota Wood said so much, and it got me worried. I mean, I, Jim Talon isn't normally, he doesn't normally express with the passion he does his concern over our lack of military readiness. So that it just uh, you want to log on to the NewstalkSTL.com website. You can see the entire event there. It's up there for your pleasure. If you didn't get a chance to see it, even if you were there, review it. And yes, you saw it. It really did happen. Pinch yourself, folks. Uh, we are we are rapidly slipping in this country to uh, to a second place position. I think it's fair to say that in uh, in world dominance. Um, and remember, next time that there's an event, and it's not if it's when there will be an event. Um, we uh, we will certainly hope that to see you there. Uh, and thanks to the Hammonds, the Hammond Institute at Lindenwood for their uh, for their sponsorship of the uh, of the event as well. It was a great 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 event, uh, and the others who participated. So it's time for Bagel Wind. Uh, let's hear from Secretary of Education Miguel Cardonas. Listen to this when he <coughs> goes after Ron DeSantis. This is uh, our Bagel Wind. Cut one, the pot calling the kettle black. Governor DeSantis proposed plans to defund all diversity, equity, and inclusion programs at state colleges and universities. Now, Ron DeSantis seems like he is positioning himself to run for president. He's going to be a national player for the next couple years. So what kind of implications do you think that could have if it spreads to the national level? Not only in Florida, but across the country, we really have to pay attention to what's happening, to this overreach, uh, to this division in education. This overreach, the overreach, says the Secretary of Education, by those of us who want to remove pornography from our kids' libraries, who want them not to be groomed or at a minimum sexually, uh, you know, oriented uh, when they're, you know, in grade school. Uh, so I think the overreach is on you, uh, Secretary Cardonas, not on Ron DeSantis. His is a proper pushback against your overreach. That's Bagelwin clip number one. Number two is um, Biden. And uh, speaking of sex change for our children, listen to this. This is frightening from the president of the United States. The transgender kids is a really harder day thing. What's going on in Florida? is, as my mother would say, close to sinful. I mean, it's just terrible what they're doing. It's not like, you know, a kid wakes up one morning and says, you know, I decided I want to become a man or I want to become a woman or I want to change. I mean, what, what, what are they thinking about here? 
They're human beings. They love, they have feelings, they have inclinations that are, I mean, it, it just to me is, I don't know, it, it's cruel. Yeah, it's cruel, President Biden, to let children uh, play with sparklers too close to their eyes. It's cruel to have children uh, ride a bike when they're just learning without a helmet, frankly, anytime without a helmet. It's cruel to let kids play out in the middle of a busy street. And for you to be complicit and call those of us who want to protect children from what is the largest experiment on a generation of Americans since the Tuskegee uh, experiment on black Americans with syphilis back in the early 20th century, to call that sinful and cruel, you, your academic elites, your administration, and those in your healthcare administration especially that are endorsing this experimentation on a generation of children, that is sinful. That is cruel. Number three in our bag of wind is, uh, guess who? President Biden again. Let's listen to this story. He's told this several versions. Oh, here's one that he told last week. You codified uh, support for same-sex marriage and interracial marriages like like ours. I'm curious what your evolution was like on marriage equality and what the federal government might be able to do to protect LGBTQ Americans, especially trans kids who are dealing with all these regressive state laws that are popping up right now. I can remember exactly where my uh, epiphany was. Okay. I hadn't thought much about it, to tell you uh-huh. the truth. And I was, a, I was a senior in high school, and my dad was dropping me off. And I remember about to get out of the car, and I looked to my right, and two well-dressed men in suits kissed each other. I mean, they gave each other a kiss. And then one went, looked like he was heading to the DuPont building, and one looked like he headed to the Hercules Corporation building. And I'll never forget, I turned and looked to my dad. He said, Joey, it's simple. They love each other. It's simple. No, I'm not joking. All right. That was uh, Joe Biden talking to Cal Penn, uh, who is, I guess, <clears throat> uh, the host of what? What is it? The Saturday show? I don't know. Some, the Daily Show? I don't know. They've been through several hosts since John Stewart. And again, this is not. Of course, the left will critique those of us who are talking about this in relation to Joe's lying, and that's what the point of me playing that clip is. This is not about gay marriage, although I have my opinion about that. And you can have an opinion about gay marriage and have a totally different tolerance and acceptance of people that choose to be gay. Uh, That aside, this is not about the content of this particular story. It's that Joe Biden over and over and over again has this terrible, nasty habit of lying and doing it with a straight face and very serious in his delivery. There's been various story uh, versions of this story and other versions of this, uh, the two men kissing in the 1960s, dressed up in business suits, heading to, uh, you know, buildings that in one, in this latest uh, instance is about seven miles from the train station he's talking about, the Amtrak station uh, in Delaware there. Uh, at any rate, in other versions of this, of, uh, this story, he's not the son, but he's the father. And it's his children asking about it, Hunter and, uh, and Bo Biden. So, you know, Joe, what is it? Is the story again fabricated like your story of getting arrested when you were trying to defend rights in South Africa and working with Nelson Mandela? You know what? Sat down, had a few burgers with him. I mean, we don't believe anything you say anymore, Joe, because you're a professional politician and you've done it for so long that you don't even know when you're lying. 
And that's you lose credibility, Mr. President. And when you're sitting across from Xi Jinping and when you're sitting across from the Ayatollah in Iran, when you're sitting across from Putin, I, uh, I, I don't trust that they think that anything you say is true either. Not that we can trust that what they say is true. But I don't think you have the credibility that uh, American presidents have had on the international stage that you need to have. Uh, because uh, more now, more than ever uh, in this country, and I think in this world, authenticity and truth-seeking are the secret sauce that will get us back to some semblance of, um, well, it'll pull us back from the precipice of either world war or uh, economic collapse. And of course, we saw a little bit of that with uh, the lies and the the, the, the the deceit that's been going on around the whole climate change issue, how banks have been distracted, uh, Silicon Valley Bank of primary among them, distracted from making good investment decisions in their portfolios. I would argue that maybe they had their uh, eyes on the wrong prize. I'm Randy Tobler. We're going to wrap it up for this uh, hour. We're going to talk to a German guy who's going to talk about capitalism. You'll find this really interesting. He's written a new book, and um, his name is Rainer Zittelman. We hope that he calls us from Germany here in just a few minutes. We'll see if that happens on the Randy Tobler Show on News Talk STL. Thanks for being here. <laughs>